so Matthew 16, 13 through 20 uh, is our reading for today. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon, Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, the and then Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Today I've entitled uh, the, the sermon, Who Do You Say Jesus Is? Who do you say Jesus is? Uh, and I want to begin with another question. Uh, if you could have one question answered in life, if you could have one question answered, what would it be? Uh, when will this pandemic end? When will life go back to normal? Uh, how can we prevent future pandemics, perhaps? Uh, what is the cure to cancer? Uh, what stocks should I invest in? Should I still get into GameStop? Um, will my kids turn out okay? Does he or she have the same feelings for me? Uh, who or what can I hope in? These are all fair questions, human questions, natural questions, and some of these even feel like urgent questions, but I dare say that most of them, if not all of them, are temporary questions, meaning questions for this life. An important tenet of following Jesus, believing in Jesus and his message is we truly believe that there is life after this life. And I know that is a challenging notion, especially in this day, as we become more and more scientific and more and more people think this life is it. You die and that's it, nothing. But no, we're here to be challenged by Christ's worldview message that there truly is life after this life. And so you and I would be better served to ask questions more like, uh, is there life after this life? Is there a, a good place and a bad place after we die? And yes, I'm talking about heaven and hell. Is there a God? And if there is a God, then what is his system? How do I uh, participate in a system so that I find myself in his good graces after this life? Now, the Christian we have clear and confident answers to these questions. But let's go one step further. If we could boil it down, boil it down, distill it to the one singular most pressing question in history, what would it be? I believe Jesus in today's passage, he actually offers that question. He asks it to Peter, and he is still asking it to you and me in 2021. And that question is, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? My hope and prayer through this week as I've been preparing this uh, sermon 
is that as we work through today's passage, and not only today, but each and every morning that you wake and through the day and when you lay your head to rest at night, that there would be something welling up, bubbling up in your heart, and then exploding. Jesus, you are my Christ. Jesus, you are my Christ. But that would be your confession along with Peter. Now, to help us move in that direction, I'm going to ask four more questions today. First, um, what are you going to do with this Jesus of history? We saw that uh, profound video, this uh, history fast-forwarded, time-lapse fast-forwarded, kingdoms rising and falling, and yet we see Jesus and his, what, the, the, the faith that he's put out, the, the belief system, the worldview, his gospel that it has surpassed all time and continues to go full force with strength. And so what are you going to do with this Jesus in history? Second, what does Jesus represent for us all? I think that's an important question we need to ask today. What does Jesus represent for us all? And who does Jesus say he is? Who does Jesus say he is? And finally, who do you say that Jesus is? So the first big question, big idea today what are you, what are you personally going to do with Jesus of history? Matthew, the whole point of, and, and why, and, and all the writers of Scripture, they were inspired by the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, to record, to uh, make a record of who Jesus is and to explain who he is and what he means to our life. And it's not only to explain, but there, for there to be a historical record. And, and Matthew as he's written his gospel, every time we see him pen Jesus, the character of Jesus, he is referring to this human being that came into history. And we see it in verse 13 here. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Every time you read the word Jesus in the Bible, every time you hear the name Jesus, I want you first to think that and associate that, connect that to a real historical human being, just as real as all the other historical figures that we esteem and study. Now, Jesus referring to himself, he gave himself the term, he acknowledged for himself the term, the son of man. And there are two meanings to that term. On the surface, the first obvious one is what that term implies, that he is also a son of humanity. He's a human. He's a son of the human race. That's the first meaning. And Matthew wants us to see that, that Jesus is human. If he lived today, he would get up to some ringtone alarm in the morning, just like you and me. He would have to put on his pants one leg at a time, just like you and me. He might kick himself uh, that he forgot to plug in his phone and charge it overnight, uh, just like you and me. Meaning, here's this normal human being. Now, just to make him even more normal, Matthew himself, on the surface, we can read his account of Jesus that he was born into a questionable situation. On the surface, it looks messy. It looks like he was born out of wedlock to a woman who claimed an angel's visit, an explanation about her pregnancy. He was raised in humble Jewish surroundings in Roman-controlled Judea and Galilee. He got separated from his parents as a boy, caused his parents anxiety, and he had to learn obedience to his parents like any other kid. 
Growing up, he worked roughly with his hands, apprenticed to his carpenter father. He grew up with family and religious traditions, just like you and me, looking forward to those annual traditions during the year, uh, national pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and learning and praying the Jewish scriptures. I believe he dealt with sibling rivalry in his family, especially with that awkward elephant in the room that he was the lone half-brother to his other siblings. He had a small group of simple followers when he finally did launch his public ministry. Just 12 simple, normal Jewish men. He grew hungry and thirsty. He grew tired, perhaps even burnt out, and he needed naps. He grew sad and sobbed at his friend's grave. But perhaps most telling of his humanity, when he was cut, he bled. You know, we know that he was mocked, tortured, hung on a wooden cross just outside Jerusalem, and three hours later, he died. And during his earthly time on this earth, he received no earthly political power in that strict earthly sense. He didn't uh, raise up a military army. He did not have any economic influence in concrete earthly sense. And in fact, he, he never traveled 320 kilometers from his birthplace, more than 320 kilometers. And so this son of man, this son of man, we, we, we can't, and especially if you've been following Christ for a long time, I don't want you to brush over, to read over the fact that this Jesus is human. That's the first meaning of son of man. And this son of man, where his historical account should have and could have surely just ended right there with his death, it didn't. And this human Jesus, history records that hundreds were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And within a couple of months of his death and resurrection, there were thousands, thousands who placed faith in him and were following him. And they began to become known as Christians. A couple, and within a couple of centuries, there were hundreds of thousands in, within the Mediterranean region claiming to be Christians and Christ followers. And fast forward to 325 AD, uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor, he officially declared Jesus, Christianity, as his official religion. And fast forwarding to the present, if you're here for the beginning of the service, that time-lapse fast-forward of kingdoms rising and falling gives more uh, just appreciation for this fact. Fast-forward to 2021, and roughly a third of the world professing Jesus Christ. So this Son of Man, this Jesus, who refers to himself as the Son of Man, a real human being, and now we see the kind of impact, and even secular historians would not deny that even our Western civilization to this day has been built upon the values and principles of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with this Jesus of history? Christ follower, that is a question we need to ask afresh every day. So don't let that become old to you. This Jesus of history, you wake up every day to follow him, to make your choice to follow him. 
What are you going to do with this Jesus of history? And of course, naturally, to our friends who are still investigating Christ, this is the question to you. What are you going to do with this Jesus of history? The second big question, big idea to get us thinking, what what does now Jesus represent for all of us? If anyone or any idea, excuse me, is going to be relevant to you and me, uh, we need to be able to connect to that person or that idea. Now, speaking specifically about Jesus, he needs to represent something for you and me in a real way. So the question, what does Jesus represent for all of us? So we continue on in the narrative then. We see Matthew writing, Now when, notice when, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Matthew is intentional in what he records, and Jesus in his life, there was never anything by accident, never anything haphazard. Every single detail, every word spoken, every choice, every action, every timing was intentional for Jesus. And so here he comes to this district of Caesarea Philippi, and Matthew wants us to notice it. When he came into here, and now this intentional conversation unfolds. So notice Caesarea Philippi. I have to admit, on just first reading, I just kind of brushed through it. It's like, okay, he visits another place, another town, another city. But a little background story to even the name of the city, Caesarea Philippi, it'll give some perspective. And I think Matthew wants us to slow down and and take this in. Josephus, the most comprehensive Jewish historian of antiquity, he's most helpful. And so I learned this uh, from his writings So did you know that the city of Caesarea Philippi was originally named Banias, in the region of Banias, in the city of Bania? And the origin of that city is that the Caesar Augustus, the first uh, emperor of Rome, he gifted that city to Herod the Great, King Herod the Great. Now, when, and Herod the Great, in tribute to Caesar, built a white marble temple Uh, to honor him, to worship him, because Caesar also self-declared as a a god. Now, when King Herod died, he split up uh, Israel into parts, and he gave that northern, eastern region of Israel to his nephew, Philip. And so when Philip became tetrarch, with basically sort of a a sub-king, a co-king of Israel, Uh, he paid further homage to Caesar, Augustus. And so he changed the name of the city to Caesarea. And he enlarged it, and it became the capital of his domain, of his reign. And so you can think of it when it says here, the district of Caesarea Philippi, it's kind of like in the States, Washington, D.C., the district capital. It's not a city per se, but it's this district that represents the capital of that nation of that rule. And then later on, uh, Philip added his own name to the city, Caesarea Philippi. And so what you need to understand is this city really is an ode to the pride and power of two just, you know, power-drunk egos. This, the city itself, when you enter it, it's meant to remind you of who's king, who's powerful. And so Matthew records intentionally when, now when Jesus came into this district and towards this city, the city that memorializes human strength and power and greatness. Jesus, he visits this region only once. 
And we need to see that he intentionally has this conversation that he's about to have with Peter and his disciples here. Now they say in general, uh, when it comes to human struggles or human issues, there are four general questions that we all wrestle with. And the first is of identity. Who am I? Second is of worth. Do I matter? The third is impact. What is my place in life? And finally, of meaning. Have I achieved happiness and glory? Or will I achieve happiness and glory? And when Matthew records Jesus asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? I think it's not a far cry for us to, that this is intentional in this setting where we're reminded of the strongest, most powerful leader uh, who just passed away recently, Caesar Augustus, and of Philip, who is currently reigning. In this contrast to other earthly kings and powers and emperors, Jesus asked these similar questions of himself, his identity, his worth, his impact, his meaning. And in that sense, Jesus is no different than any of us. And should we be surprised? No. When you understand our humanity, even our psychology as human beings through the lens of Scripture, we see that God from the beginning, He's hardwired every human being. He's built into our very nature, our DNA, into the fabric of humanity, the mandate to exist with purpose, to be known, to be loved, to perform, to cultivate, to innovate, to produce, to go, to expand, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. And indeed, as we live this out, to share in God's glory. From Adam, the very first man, to all the kings and queens of history, to every hustling entrepreneur, to every sweat, you know, browed nonprofit director, to every hardworking man and woman in every age, every child that is trying to make effort to become whoever and whatever, to please whomever, all people trying to advance in that original and ongoing human quest. If you're like me, I remember when I visited uh, Parliament Hill and I had a chance to visit Washington, D.C. When I visited those places, without even looking for it, just this sense of like power came over me. (laughs) Just even imagining, hmm, what would it be like to be walking these halls and to have a certain position and title? Or perhaps you're a young hockey player and you walk into 30 Young Street you're imagining, will, will, I, will my face and name be on these walls, this hall of fame one day? Or perhaps in your life, you're looking at some icon in history or some contemporary icon right now, someone you look up to professionally, personally, and, and you're just looking up to them. See, what's, what's natural to the human heart is, is to hero worship. Our culture is full of hero worship. Even... Christians aren't immune to it. That's why, sadly, we, our hearts get broken and again and again when we hear of the Ravi Zacharias of, 
of Christianity and the Carl Lenses and, and on and on and on. Even Christians aren't immune to putting humans on, at a place on a pedestal too high of a level than we should be. But the point is, these, these questions, who am I? What is my life worth? Do I matter? What is my impact and place in life? Will I will, uh, meaningfully achieve happiness and greatness? These questions become inescapably real, whether we're trying to live that out through ourselves or through another person as we hear a worship. Now these questions then, I think in a poetic and fitting way, Jesus is also asking of himself. Jesus, in that sense, he represents us. He's just another human being as well, wanting to live to the highest glory, to the glory of God. Jesus comes to this earth with resolve and momentum of a bullet train, and he's come to fulfill God's mandate, to live up to his law, to attain to the highest height of God's glory, and in this way, Jesus represents us all. Now what's important to understand, or ask next then, and to see is, who does Jesus, Jesus himself say he is? Who does Jesus say he is? Picking up in verse 14, and they said, so Jesus asks his disciples, what's the word on the street? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples answered, well, some say, and they start going through the news ticker tape headlines. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so what you need to understand the common thread between these four names or three names, and then generally prophets, is that they're all prophets. They're all iconic people in the history of Israel, people who had authority and spoke a message. Maybe much like today, we might say, oh, you know, certain popular TED speakers who have this authoritative message to to really listen and try to apply in our lives. A similar thing going on there, and And these are people that the people of Israel were looking back to. But something they believed in is that one of these great icons in the history of Israel would resurrect. They they got that from the Psalms. We won't get deep into that. But they believed that their Savior would resurrect and come back and, and come in power. And in this time in history, what you need to understand is just as you and I in history, concretely right now in this moment, probably... A majority of human hearts are looking for a saving vaccine. Similarly, the people of Israel during this time in history, because of Roman impression, they're looking for a human figure to come in the name of God and to be their savior. Now, there was a special word, special term set apart for that person that they were hoping in. In the Hebrew scriptures, it's the word Massah. And in English, we translate that to Messiah. And then Messiah, in the Greek, it's just the same word in the Greek, translating the Greek, is Christ. So here's another commonality that we all share, even with the people on the street who had their notions of who Jesus is, who they wanted him to be. We were looking for our hero. Whether it's yourself or someone that you want to hope in, Perhaps something that you want to hope in. Now, 
all our heroes, all our heroes, whether biblical or secular, they fizzle out. If I can compare all our heroes, even the biblical heroes and, and secular heroes, if, we could, if I could compare them to something, just imagine with me. Okay, don't do this at home. It's not, it's not safe. Imagine you had one of those fireworks, you know, the tube in your hand, okay? And you shoot it off midday sun, and you aim it at the sun. Just bright day, you shoot it off. And those heroes that we look to, those earthly heroes, be it biblical or secular, they're like that firework that shoots up towards the sun and then just fizzles out. Meaning, sure, they're bright. They resemble something akin, vaguely akin to the brilliance of the blazing sun. And they point us to the sun. They get our attention to be looking at the sun as it's aimed there and shot there. But their brightness almost pointlessly pales in comparison to the over powering brightness of the sun's brilliance and they fizzle out but at least they get us looking upward so even for christians today as we look at the heroes in the bible from adam to noah during the time of the judges even a woman deborah gideon david solomon elijah to the last spoken prophet malachi in redemptive history to all the noble heroes of broader history, whoever you might look up to, they're all just mere fireworks into the noonday sun. They inadequately reflect some quality of the hero, the Messiah, the Christ that we're looking for. And so Jesus, now he gets to the point. He turns to his disciples and he asked, but, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And Peter, in one of his best moments, he replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter does something supernatural here. Peter does something beyond his own understanding. And Jesus affirms as much. Jesus responds, blessed are you. Blessedness here is a sign of God's grace. It's the same blessedness of the Beatitudes. And as you read scripture, blessedness is a fruit of God's grace working in your life. And so basically to paraphrase, Jesus saying, full of grace are you. Simon, son of Jonah. That's what bar Jonah means. Just literally means son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And Jesus is speaking to Simon, Simon's humanity. That the human Simon has had something supernaturally revealed to him. And what Peter does is we, we need to appreciate what he's done here. Remember, Jesus asked, who is the son of man? And now we get to the second meaning of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, God's people believed, and so should we as we read the Bible today, that according to Daniel, the Son of Man is basically God's Messiah. The human being 
the son of the human race who would be chosen by God to be God's saving Messiah. Now what we need to understand is that the folk here, they had a very specific idea of what the Messiah would be. They were looking for a political savior, a military savior, someone to literally, politically, concretely push back Rome and free Israel from political, economic, military captivity. But that wasn't God's understanding of Messiah. It was first a spiritual savior, one to save us from our sins. And then in eternity, yes, there will be a literal, physical, new earth where God reigns. You'll have his government. And in that sense, it will be political. It will be economic in that sense, in eternity, ultimately. But for now, what they missed was that God was sending someone first to take care of their spiritual need. But Peter, nevertheless, what he does is, supernaturally, he identifies Jesus as the Son of Man, God's Messiah, and bridges it with the word Christ. You are the Messiah, the Christ, and now to Christ's divinity that he surely is the Son of God. And in this way, we need Jesus to represent us all. We need Jesus to be that human who represents us to God and takes our place for our sins. And only the Son of God could fulfill that because only the Son of God could be sinless. And so this brings us To the last question, again, who do you say Jesus is? Uh, Last summer, I had the uh, opportunity to um, do a 160-kilometer gravel ride with my cycling buddies. And it was the summer. It was scorching heat. And it was a a 160-loop of Simcoe County. Uh, And it was hot. It was hard. And I barely made it. I barely made it to the end. Now, when I got home and started posting my ride and all this, and friends started asking me, did you hit Elmvale? I said, what are you talking about? What are you talking, you didn't hit Elmvale? And I started Googling it, and on that loop, there's an iconic watering hole in Elmvale in aptly uh, named Springwater Township that boasts apparently the cleanest water in the world. (laughs) They're not embellishing. We have the cleanest water in the world. And so the picture you see on the right there, that is the fountain uh, from that whatever natural source. And you're supposed to stop there and just be refreshed, just even like take a mini bath in it and and drink it and be refreshed. And I felt so uh, just, oh, what a waste of a grueling day for me to do all that hard work and miss this one beautiful, refreshing spot, the, the sort of the iconic stopping spot. And I want to kind of liken that to our lives. And that's why being able to answer this question, who do you say Jesus is? Because we can live our life, just work and toil and go about, or even maybe we do achieve what we think is happiness and glory. We do figure out who am I, at least the sense of it, And we create for ourselves some sense of mattering and so forth. But in the end, what if you find out you missed that most important watering spot? You missed 
answering the most important question that history offers us. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, I'm not going to show all the text of where this comes from, but the, the second half of this passage is so important. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to translate it to applications, just ways for us to live this out. First, as you answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? I hope that translates to embracing the mystery of God's sheer grace choosing to reveal Christ to you. When Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of man. So as a human being, just in your own self, you couldn't have known this. You need to see that this is God's grace revealing it to you. The Father has revealed it to you. And so all of us, Christ follower today or not, we need to understand that it's God's sheer grace. And so, The next natural step, Christ investigating friend. Follow the spiritual breadcrumbs. Simon, in that moment, must have just had a thought that was percolating, or or maybe it was going on through the years that he was following Jesus and observing him and trying to connect the dots between Jesus and his actions, his miracles, his his preaching, to everything that he had been brought up on in the Scriptures, and he followed the spiritual breadcrumbs. And he came to that moment, God's sheer grace, bringing him to the place of saying, now crossing the line and courageously saying, you are the Christ. I say it out loud. I articulate it. Make it real. Christ's following friend. One takeaway for us then is that let us persist in prayer. It's a practical note. If you can carve out Saturday mornings, join us. Join us online. It's never been easier to join us because it's online. Saturday morning's nine, and we pray for people's faith. We pray for God's kingdom to come on this earth. We pray for healings. We pray for encouragement. But even if it's not Saturday 9 a.m., through your life, make time to persist in prayer because you believe that it's God's sheer grace that will convince your beloved friends and family and coworkers, whoever it is that we're praying for, certain people groups, that you would pray for them, that God's grace by His Spirit would open up their eyes to see Jesus in history as the Christ. Remember, Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. Christ is an identity. It's Jesus, the Christ. And so during this time, church, another takeaway, find hope in Jesus the Christ at all times. This is a perfect time through this pandemic as the church to be shining our hope because Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he's going to build. And did you notice that Jesus says he will build it? He, Jesus himself, is the one that is building this church. And Jesus is indefeatable, undefeatable. And indefatigable. He he won't tire. He will accomplish what the Father has given him to do. He will return one day. He will build his church. So you can and I can find hope. Even as I look out at 826 and see empty seats and just see the fallout of pandemic and evidence of the pandemic everywhere, I don't lose hope. I keep believing and, and gladly investing my life into Christ and his purposes, and I hope you will do the same. And church, as a final application, keep building on the rock-solid foundation of confessing Jesus as Christ. If you'll notice in the passage, Jesus says, 
uh, and Peter, which means, translated, it, it means more just a stone, a small stone. So, small stone. And he says, on this rock. And that rock, the word, it's different. Same root, but different. It means a, a large cliff or a large stone. Something much more significant and massive. So, small stone Peter. The confession you've just made, I'm going to build upon this confession of Christ. I believe Christ is ultimately the rock. We'll get into an argument for that today. And then, more specifically, the confession of Christ. Confessing that Jesus, the human, is the Christ, the Son of God. Our Savior to take our place for our sins. Upon that solid foundation, Jesus is going to build his church. And that's why he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because when someone professes Christ and God's grace is working in them and they continue to fight that good fight, that confession, that union with Christ is what will bring them out of the gates of hell. And we're to picture, if you can picture a battle scene from one of those movies with the army coming up with the, battling, uh, the battle ram, right? The battling ram. Uh, the, and, and they're trying to pound down that gate. The church is on the offensive. The church is coming against the gates of hell. And Jesus, he's come to go into hell, which he did on that third day, in, in those three days that he was in the grave. And he brings out captives by that confession that he is the Christ. So keep building your life on this rock-solid foundation of confessing Jesus as the Christ. I hope it's in your heart. I hope you want to stand with me now and just sing, Jesus, you are my Christ.